The following audio is from All Saints Church. For more information about the church, please visit our website at allsaintsgb.org. Our New Testament reading this morning comes to us from James chapter 2, starting in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? And the ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. God, we thank you for your word. If you walk into any new place on the first day, whether it be a school, a workplace, a church, or even a social media platform, that day can be like Judgment Day. Something is determined about you very quickly on that day. I walked into junior high wearing braces and a summer-kissed face of freckles. I had knockoff Nikes large brown tinted horn rim glasses, and I weighed in at about 110 pounds. And I knew by the looks which immediately met me and quickly just went around me that I was marked, invisible, unimportant, insignificant. Judging me by my outward appearance, I was deemed as having nothing to offer the students of Edison Junior High. My fellow students took a quick look at the outward appearance of this gawky boy who faced them and determined how low of a position they had, he had, on the junior high hierarchy. There's an expression in the ancient languages of Hebrew and Greek that describes this judgment day. It's called holding the face. 
Holding the face happens when someone is judged as favorable or unfavorable based on what can be seen with the naked eye. Confession. I hold the face often when I walk into Walmart. It's an honest confession. I hold the face often when I go into Walmart. I have a private judgment day in my head as I make my own rulings based on jammy pants at 5 p.m. Or I've seen you on Jerry Springer or Judge Judy, like holding the face. It's ugly. Playing favorites based on what my eyes can see. It's sinful. And none of us, none of you are exempt from it. I confess Walmart, but where, when, how do you size up people the same way? What if I was up here missing my two front teeth? Do you hold the literal face based on my physical appearance? What if me don't talk like this? Do you hold the intellectual face based on my level of learning? What if my name were Pastor Biden or Reverend Bin Laden or Dr. Tim Keller Jr.? Do you hold the status face based on my social standing or powerful family tree? What if I came in sporting Armani, Vendi, Gucci, and Louis Vuitton? Do you hold the wealth face based on my ability to pay for first class? One cannot, James says, hold the face, practice favoritism based on externals, and at the same time keep the faith. James, the author of this letter, was discouraged to see and hear that the people he once pastored who were now scattered out into all these other places, were guilty of holding the face. His displaced congregation, they were mostly poor peasants, judged invisible and insignificant to the wealthy around them. So poor that their church budgets were like week to week, can we get through? Or their physical church walls were, were unstable and weak. But what happened to that little church when a Tesla horse and chariot pulled into the visitor space of the lot? Oh, we might be okay. James's command to them when that happens is this. My brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith, not the face, as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. James is here to encourage them to let go of holding the face and hold tightly instead to the faith, asking them to look beyond their own faulty judgments to the final judgment day. As he encourages this in my proposition for this message, King Jesus faces the faithful with justice plus mercy. So we must live like our judgment day. Jesus the King faces the faithful with justice plus mercy. So we must live like our judgment day. What does it look like to live like our judgment day? The first thing to mention, 
is it looks like treating the poor as if the kingdom were theirs. Look with me at verses 2 to 6. James, he begins his argument against holding the face by giving a testimony, an illustration, like in a courtroom, of something he's seen happen in every church in verses 2 to 4. He says, picture this. Two guys walk into All Saints as we ring the bell. The first one sports three Super Bowl rings on his fingers. He smells amazing. And he's wearing a white tailor-made suit, no socks, custom leather loafers. At the same time, right next to him is a man who smells like a hockey locker room, who has no shoes, no shirt, and he's scratching as if the bugs he slept on last night have taken residence in his scalp. If the church is living according to the world's judgment day, A favoritism of holding the face, verse 3 tells us what will happen. The Super Bowl MVP has a line of greeters waiting to shake his hand, smell his cologne, and sit him in the reserved row free of crying babies or overbearing ladies or religious crazies. You sit over here. And the second guy follows behind thinking that's where the visitor section is when he's quickly rerouted to the penalty box of the church's front row. (laughs) James asks, James asks the question, what has happened here at the end of verse 1, or verse 4? He says, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? What the church is doing here is making distinctions and creating human separations based on someone's perceived social value. People marking other people into specific classes or categories based on their social value. Men, here. Women, not here. Black, not here. White, here. Educated, here. Uneducated, out of here. Humans take the seat of biased judgment And our judgment contains what James says is evil thoughts, which is the logic or the conclusion of evil itself. What is evil logic? Basically this, what's in it for me? That's evil logic. Self-glory. What's in it for me? What does that person have to offer me? And James says this, listen in verse 5, listen, beloved That's his term for, he he loves this family. Listen, beloved. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world or according to the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? You have shamed, you have dishonored this poor man by treating him like this. James points them to the judgment day. When those whom the world rejected as of zero value have lived as if their wealth was not in stuff, but their wealth was in Jesus, those poor people will be handed the keys to paradise. C.S. Lewis argues the importance of seeing the value of a human being, not in terms of the face of what you see on the outside, but in terms of their final destination. 
children of the king of heaven or products of evil self-glory? He writes this. It is a serious thing to live in a society of potential princes and princesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature of which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these possibilities. It is with the awe and the carefulness proper to them, image bearers of God, that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics with this reality. King Jesus faces the poor man who admits he has nothing to show for his life of sin. He faces that man with both justice and mercy. See this on the cross. When a con man thief hangs next to a heavenly king, he admits to Jesus' innocence and owns his own guilt as he quiets the thief next to him. You and I deserve to die. Jesus has done nothing wrong, is what he says. And then he looks to Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Poor man declaring, I got nothing. You have everything. And the justice and judgment deserved a thief or a murderer or an adulterer is transferred onto Christ. And the glory and the paradise deserved a perfect king is given, is handed to this poor man. When Jesus says to him, today, today you will be with me in paradise. Friends, this doesn't mean that we elevate the poor at the expense of the rich. No, it means, as Billy Graham was quoted as saying, we believe and we live as if the ground is level at the cross. There are no rich men hanging before the king. All of us are hanging poor before the king. Poor in the scriptures, friends, refers to anyone who is dependent on someone else for help. Those who put their faith in Jesus are now rich in faith because we've depended upon him for help. As we know, we are now marked no longer as sinners, but marked as beneficiaries of the entire inventory of the entire wealth of paradise in the kingdom of God. Everyone is poor in light of a perfect Christ. But we have been shown merciful, merciful goodness and inheritance. And so then we treat everyone according to that. We treat the poor first as if the kingdom were theirs. That's how we live like our judgment day. Because that was our judgment day. Secondly, we also reject the world's ways in all of its errors. This is verses 6 and 7. 
James shows us from experience what bowing down and giving in to the riches ways has done to this church. It's made them slaves to the rich. He says, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Friends, I want you to see the errors James is pointing out about the world's ways. Number one, the rich and powerful of the world believe they're the one in charge. And what we tend to do is we believe that's true. Friends, you need to reject that error in that way with the truth of the gospel. Jesus is the king. Jesus is in charge. He's the one who made this world, and he's the one who holds this world together. Not Jeff Bezos, not Elon Musk, not Vladimir Putin. These men will stand so small in the presence of Jesus. So tiny they will be in his presence. Reject that, that they are the ones in charge, the rich and powerful. Secondly, the rich and the powerful of the world think anyone under them is an underling. And we want to be just like them, having their celebrity status. The most powerful posture of leadership, friends, is not lording over people, but getting under people to serve them. This is the way of Christ, who considered equality with God not a thing that he wanted to get his hands around, but he made himself nothing so that he could give us what he has. Reject the belief that anyone is under you. And get under them. Number three, the rich and powerful, they use high-pressure tactics and manipulation and lawyering up to cheat and steal from those underneath them. Friends, we are sucked in to these high-pressure tactics as we are monsters of materialism. We are filled with advertisements in our face. You need this, you need this, you need this, you need this. So we go and buy this. We must get this, we must get this. And guess who's calling out the shots? Rich and powerful people who know how to get into the minds of people and get them salivating for the next earbuds, iPods, whatever it might be. I gotta get that, I gotta have that. That's a rich and powerful scheme that's working. And as we get sucked into the materialism, forking over billions of dollars to, say, Disney... And as soon as I say Disney in this message, they might bring their lawyers in to sue me for defamation of the company's character when they hear this sermon recording. Friends, the ones who die with the most toys still die. The ones who die with the most toys do not win. We will all stand before a court of holiness to ask, not how much do you have, or what kind of position did you land, or how successful were you in your life, or how powerful were you in your life. No. Did you keep the law of God completely will be what we're asked. And without a plead for Christ to be our perfection, there is a demand from God to pay up on the debt that you owe him which is an eternity of punishment and payback. Number four, the rich and the powerful, they want zero to do with Jesus, who preaches selling everything to follow him. They blaspheme his good name, James says. But we are, ten, we are tempted 
to start to wonder, you know what, these celebrities and all these people that have all this stuff, man, they might be onto something. Jesus says sell everything, but look at the people who have a lot. They're, they're pretty content. We start to wonder, maybe they are onto something. Maybe this is a better life. But friends, the rich and the powerful don't want Jesus because they don't want to give up what they have. They don't want to admit weakness, vulnerability, or need. They want to remain pridefully refusing him. Trying to find security in what they own or who they own. Reject it. And find security instead in the only one who overcame death. That's where our security comes. He who dies with the least amount of toys dies and yet can live again. Lastly, living our judgment day means treating the poor as if the kingdom were theirs, rejecting the world and all of its errors, and finally, loving justice plus mercy as undeserved heirs. Look with me at verses 8 to 13. James says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. James marks God's people, not by the faith, but by the keeping of this law. If you're loving people as you yourself wish to be loved, or you're loving people as you have been loved on your judgment day, then everything he said in the previous chapter of being not only hearers, but doers or makers of this gospel is happening. When you sin against someone or against God, what do you want that someone or what do you want God to do about it? Do you want them to hold you accountable and punish you for what you've done? No. You plead first, have mercy on me. But we have to plead justice and mercy, friends. The justice of the cross has to come first. Someone has to pay for what's been done here. And Jesus' perfect body becomes your penalty. And then we plead his mercy where his blood, we stand under that cross and his blood covers and washes us of every single wrongdoing. So if you're loving others as you have been loved, what will come out of you, friends, is justice and mercy. Justice, treating all people fairly, and mercy, showing compassion to broken people, even enemies. If you're loving as you have been loved, then justice, treating people fairly, And mercy, showing compassion to everyone, even enemies, will flow out of you. You're doing well. Verse 9 says, though, but if you show partiality, if you hold the face, he says, literally, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For everyone keeps the whole law but fails in just one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, don't commit adultery, also said, don't murder. If you don't commit adultery, but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. What he's saying here, what James is trying to say here is, you might think partiality and your playing of favorites, you know what? Not really that bad. Not that big of a deal. I haven't killed anyone, is what we say. 
You might excuse it as just the way things are in the world. It's just how it goes. It's the way to get ahead. It's how to market yourself. It's how to win friends and influence people. That's what I'm doing. It's not that bad. But James uses Jewish logic to put partiality in the same camp as adultery and murder, equally deserving of death. Favoritism will receive the same judgment as Jeffrey Dahmer, a serial killer. Do you believe that? Every time you've sized someone up based on what you see, every time you've held the face, you receive the death penalty. So what's the remedy? The gospel. Verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. To be judged under the law of liberty is to see your judgment day not as a day in the future, but a day that is already past. The cross of Christ, where your penalty for favoritism, your death penalty, was poured out on God's beloved Son. Is the cross your judgment day? Then you are free. Free, poor and needy sinners to receive the mercy of God. Welcome home, son. Free, rich, inheritor of the kingdom of God to show others the mercy of that same God. We cannot, James says, live mercilessly if we've received such a great mercy. This is why James highlights what happens on the final judgment day to those not under the law of liberty. He says this, for judgment is merciless. To one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If your life is marked with mercy, with compassion, then mercy is yours. If your life instead is marked with judgment, partiality, holding the face of who you're better than, or who you can mercifully use for your, mercilessly use for your own glory, then the face of God will be a one that brings terror to you. It won't be one that welcomes you. You will receive God's turned back of wrath if that's how you've lived. Mercy triumphs, James says. It's a great picture. Mercy is like the gladiator at the end of the big fight celebrating and boasting what he's done. Great victory. Mercy triumphs. Yeah, I won it over judgment. We talk, and I'll close with this, we talk in church circles a lot about a scripture from the book of Matthew when we talk about how to deal with each other. Matthew 18. Are you following Matthew 18? It's all about the process of church discipline. Like if someone sins against you, you go and talk to them one-on-one, and then you get some witnesses, and then you bring it to the church. It's this whole process of church discipline. We can say Matthew 18, and that's immediately what you think of probably. Okay? But just after that passage about... Church discipline is a passage about mercy. So relevant to what we're talking about today and so necessary when we even think about how God disciplines us in Matthew 18, how he corrects us. So important to look at this. What happens after Jesus talks about church discipline is Peter then asks a simple question of Jesus, a practical question. All right, so we got this whole process worked out. When someone sins against me, Peter's like, but... How much mercy are we talking about? 
Like, how much mercy are we going to extend to people who've sinned against us, really? Like, let's just talk about this. Let's get this down. we got the process. Let's get the, the portion. How much mercy? Peter's proud of his answer. He's really proud. He's like, forgiving someone seven times? Like, that's, he's really proud of that. Seven times I'm going to forgive my brother who's messed up against me. Maybe even with the same sin. Seven times? And Jesus responds, probably with a smile over his friend that he loves. Oh, Peter, I love you. But you have no idea the degree to which I love you. Not seven. Seventy times seven. And he says, imagine a man who faced his judgment day. He gives him this illustration. Who is being put in prison for owing the master... Think about this. Owing the master 60 million days of work. How much you make in a day, multiply that by 60 million. Okay? Think about that. He owed the master that. That's the amount of debt he owed. And this guy, he begs the boss. He begs the master on his judgment day. Please, please have mercy on me. Let me work to repay this. Please. It's impossible. He can't repay it, but he's just, please, please, 60 million days of labor, please. And so the master, out of mercy for him, says, you're released. Out of debtor's prison you go. And that man who was released from that huge debt, he starts walking out of the prison, and he immediately sees a coworker who needs to pay him back for lunch that he bought him. And what does he do to this guy who owes him lunch money? He grabs him and he starts choking him. Pay back what you owe me. And the man who owes him lunch is like, please, have mercy. Let me work to repay you. He says the same thing that the man just said to his master. Please, have mercy on me. I will repay you. And this man is just merciless. Jesus warns, if you're showing partiality, if you're just showing your justice and no mercy, the Heavenly Father will do to you if you don't forgive your brother from the heart, from the depths of which you've been forgiven. Jesus warns us, James warns us, being merciless does not reflect the degree of mercy that you've been shown. May all saints be a place filled with the justice to invite anyone to any seat around us, any sinner, especially those who've sinned against us. Welcome to the seat of the table of the mercy of God. Lord, make this place look more and more like our judgment day, where our 60 million days of debt are forgiven and a place where justice and mercy Meet, and guess what has the final say? Mercy. Your mercy is more. Make your mercy more. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would do a work in us in making us a merciful people. Help us to see that the poor are the ones who get the kingdom. 
Help us to see, Father, that the world's ways are just errors. And help us to reject those temptations to believe that what the rich and powerful have is what we want. And Father, may we live as undeserved heirs, showing justice by treating everyone fairly and showing mercy by having compassion on everyone, even our enemies, like you did to us. May this place look more like our judgment day when we are judged under the law of liberty, not the law of sin and death. We pray this in Christ's merciful name. Amen.